Bernie Hoffenberg, distinguished visitors, fellows, sons and daughters of the wolf. Welcome to the college's 2008 Berlin Lecture. Those of you familiar with the Oxford Book of Chinese Quotations will remember the ancient curse or blessing, may you live in interesting times. Isaiah Berlin, the founding father of this college, lived in interesting times. As a boy, he witnessed the start of the 1917 Russian Revolution, and half a century later, himself played a prominent role at the start of the Oxford Revolution of 1968, the year in which the Queen laid the foundation stone of this college. I see from your faces that that some of you have short memories. Not so the prophet Isaiah, who in that year, 1968, made a prophecy in the hearing of a Clarendon Press editor, whose name escapes me, a prophecy to be found in Henry Hardy's introduction to the 2002 edition of Berlin's Four Essays on Liberty. I've been so busy, so distracted by this new college for homeless lecturers. I will take them from the highways and byways. They will be the sweepings of the street, but they will inherit the earth. That prophecy will no doubt be fulfilled in the time of Isaiah's successor, Hermione Lee, who, as you know, is to assume his mantle later this year. The college's 2008 Berlin lecturer has also lived in interesting times where Berlin witnessed the Russian Revolution and the transformation of Europe in the first half of the 20th century, Professor Garton Ash witnessing its transformation in the second half of the century, made his name with such books as the Polish Revolution Solidarity, which won the Somerset Maugham Award, the Uses of Adversity Essays on the Fate of Central Europe, which won the Prix Européen de l'Essai, and... We the People, the Revolution of 89, witnessed in Warsaw, Budapest, Berlin, and Prague. The Berlin of that title is the city, not the prophet. These and Tim Garton Ash's subsequent books have been translated into almost as many languages as Isaiah Berlin's. Tim, as one of his many admiring friends in this college, I think I may call him that, read modern history at Oxford and began here his research into the German resistance to Hitler that then took him to Berlin, the city. He lived in both its western and eastern halves for several years and from there started to travel behind the Iron Curtain. His experiences of those years produced uh, what is for me one of his most brilliant and disturbing books, The File, A Personal History. Surprisingly, this has only been translated into 16 languages. His honours include the David Watt Memorial Prize, the Premio Napoli, the Imri Naj Memorial Plaque, the Hoffman von Fallesleben Prize and the George Orwell Prize, both for political writing, the Order of Merit from Germany, Poland and the Czech Republic, and the British CMG. In 2005, he featured in Time magazine's list of the world's 100 most influential people. 
What then could be more appropriate than that I should invite the Professor of European Studies and Isaiah Berlin Professorial Fellow at St. Anthony's to speak in Oxford's most multinational, multicultural college on the topic of Isaiah Berlin and the challenge of multiculturalism. Professor Garton Ash. Thank you very much, President, um, for that very kind introduction. Um, you mentioned the Chinese curse. May you live in interesting times. I have to say that when the, there was a Chinese edition of the file, and I spoke about this in Taiwan, and I ended my presentation by saying, as you say in Chinese, may you live in interesting times, everyone looked totally blank. <laughs> I asked them afterwards, there is no such Chinese curse. This is a Western myth, but never mind. Isaiah Berlin was, and I would say is, one of the greatest intellectual influences of my life. I first read him as an undergraduate at this university and was inspired by what I read. I first heard him when, characteristically, he then, probably the most famous intellectual in Britain, came to speak to a tiny group of undergraduates at Exeter College. And again, I was inspired. I came with time to enjoy his company. I think I can say the privilege of his friendship. He had a genius for friendship. And I'm now the Isaiah Berlin Fellow at St. Anthony's. And perhaps more importantly, for me... Isaiah's combination of liberalism and pluralism is still a guiding star. So, John, I really can say, Ich bin ein Berliner. <laughs> and so it's a particular pleasure to give the Isaiah Berlin lecture here at Wolfson and particularly in the presence of some members of his family. Now, what I'm going to do in this lecture is three things. I hope you can hear me at the back. Uh, first of all, to single out just a few aspects of Isaiah Berlin thought that seem to me particularly relevant to our theme, Isaiah Berlin and the Challenge of Multiculturalism. Secondly, to interrogate the concept, the contested concept of multiculturalism and ask what we can usefully do with it. And thirdly, to say a bit about what I think a liberal pluralist approach to the problem usually described as multiculturalism would be, or should be. So first of all, Isaiah. Now some of you may say that in entitling a lecture, Isaiah Berlin and the Challenge of Multiculturalism, I'm committing the sin of anachronism. Because after all, the debate about multiculturalism only really started in the last years of Isaiah's life. People like Charles Taylor, Will Kim Licker, our own Joseph Raz, and he only responded to it almost en passant. My answer to that would be that 
Isaiah Berlin had a particular way of doing the history of ideas which was precisely about interrogating thinkers in the past about problems of the present. Characteristically, he would, as it were, bring Aristotle, Aquinas, Montesquieu, de Maistre, Herder, Herzen, and George Sorel round a dinner table and get them all talking to each other about, say, the Berlin blockade or the Cuba Missile Crisis or the problem of Eurocommunism. That was his characteristic style. And so in doing this to him, I'm going, as it were, to Berlin, Berlin. In doing that, however, let me start with a major disclaimer. I'm not a professional historian of ideas. I'm not a professional political theorist nor a philosopher. And so I draw massively on the work of those who are, on the Berlin scholars like Henry Hardy of this college and George Crowder, on others like Stephen Lukes and Stuart White, who I'm delighted to see here, who have worked as professionals in this field. And let me also say that I'm only at the beginning of my exploration of this topic. Now, you might then ask, but how relevant is Isaiah Berlin's work to this topic? After all, he is often described as a Cold War liberal. And it's perfectly true that a lot of his work Well, first of all, he was at the height of his influence during the Cold War, and a lot of his work was about the defense of liberty in the face of Soviet totalitarianism. I would say that actually, particularly in his work on value pluralism, Isaiah Berlin's work is actually more relevant to the Europe of 2008 than in many ways it was to the Europe of 1978. Because in the Europe of 2008, The problems we face, the challenges, are particularly to do with the living together, the friction, the rubbing up against each other of people with very different backgrounds, traditions, religions, languages, nationalities, some would say cultures. And for that, the kind of discussion that Berlin had about the problems of value, pluralism and liberalism is particularly relevant. And let me remind you, that in Britain today, uh, foreign-born residents are some six million people. That is to say, roughly one in ten of the population. One in four children born in London at the moment has at least one parent of foreign origin. You only need to walk the streets of Oxford to see and hear this lived diversity. Now, what Berlin attempted to do was to combine liberalism and pluralism. He didn't argue they necessarily went together, the one did not entail the other, but that they were richly complementary, particularly in the form of value pluralism. That is to say, the insight that men and women pursue very different goals, different goods, different values, which may be equally valuable in themselves, but are not entirely and totally compatible. And you can't have them all. You can't have total freedom, complete equality, and absolute security. You have to make choices, trade-offs. You have, as he put it, to plump. Now, some would argue 
that value pluralism opens the door to ethical or moral relativism, either in the individual subjectivist form or in the form more relevant today of cultural relativism, of which multiculturalism in one radical version is clearly an example. The claim, that is, that even liberalism itself is only one competitor among others, culturally located, or as the late Martin Hollis wonderfully put it, liberalism for the liberals, cannibalism for the cannibals. (laughs) Now, I think most Berlin scholars would acknowledge that Isaiah Berlin, at least in his early work, as it were, left the garden gate open towards an element of cultural relativism, particularly in what he wrote about Herder and the incommensurability of cultures. And I think Berlin himself saw that, because towards the end of his life, having been chided on this by his former friend and colleague, Arnaldo Momigliano, he wrote a text entitled Alleged Relativism in 18th Century European Thought, which very firmly pushed the garden gate shut having acknowledged that he'd left it ajar. And so where he actually comes out is in what I would call a complex and limited liberal universalism. In Particularly in explicatory exchanges with Henry Hardy, he spelled out the notion of a common core, a moral core common to all the great cultures. As it were, if you think of those cultures as a Venn diagram, then at the intersection point of them all, you have this moral core, and a human horizon surrounding them all. In a conversation with Stephen Lukes, he said memorably, more people in more countries at more times accept more common values than is often believed. He himself liked to quote the 5th century Saint-Vincent of Lerins, quod ubique, quod semper, quod ab omnibus creditum est. What's believed everywhere, always, by everyone. And again, in exchange with Henry Hardy, in a letter, trying to spell this out, a letter of 1991, that is, a couple of years after the Salman Rushdie affair had broken, the year the Soviet Union collapsed, he wrote as follows, I quote, It must be possible to preach to Muslim bigots and communist uh, fanatics in terms of values which they have in common with the preacher. They may reject, they may argue, they may murder and torture. You can hear his voice in this letter, can't you? They may reject, they may argue, they may murder and torture. But they have to construct special hypotheses in order to account for the fact that the preacher is mistaken and explain the cause or root of the mistake, which entails some degree of common understanding. This, wrote Berlin, I firmly believe, and this applies to the whole of mankind. Now, we may ask whether those shared common universal things are thick or thin. We may ask what they are. We may ask, very pertinently, how much those things, even if universal, are liberal, or at least compatible with liberalism. But they are there. And I think the claim of a complex liberal universalism is, first of all, that at least elements 
shoots, germs, if you will, of those liberal values are present in most cultures. This is something that Amartya Sen has argued very strongly, looking, for example, at Indian and Chinese culture. And that even if they were not so strongly institutionalized in other cultures, that people living there might be happier if they were. And indeed, I think there is evidence from the last 50 years that given the choice, and giving the choice is itself a liberal value, most people do prefer liberal values most of the time. This leads me to a last point about the thinking of Isaiah Berlin as it relates to our topic. In these debates, there is a slogan which one hears quite often, which is enlightenment values as opposed to multiculturalism. Enlightenment values. I myself have received a great deal of grief over the last couple of years for having once in the New York Review suggested that Ayan Hirschi Ali might be described as an enlightenment fundamentalist. To read these debates, you would think that I had written a massive three-volume work on enlightenment fundamentalism. Die Grundsätze des Aufklärungsfundamentalismus in drei Bände. Nothing of the kind. I think I wrote it once and didn't repeat it. But I would like to say in this context that I don't think this is a useful term and I wouldn't repeat it for a very simple reason that it invites a misunderstanding that some sort of symmetry is being suggested between Islamic fundamentalism and Enlightenment fundamentalism. That is to say, in this particular case, between the would-be murderer and their intended victim. So I don't think it's a useful term uh, because of in, that it invites that in, misunderstanding. In fact, if by an Enlightenment fundamentalist one means someone who stands up for the fundamentals of freedom, toleration, respect for individual human rights and liberty, I'm an Enlightenment fundamentalist too. But I think there is a problem with this slogan of Enlightenment values. The way I hear it used by many of my own friends, what it sort of seems to mean is how a 21st century metropolitan middle-class liberal intellectual likes to live. Well, that may be an admirable thing, but it wasn't exactly what was going on in the 18th century. There is a rather important question whether there was indeed one enlightenment, as Peter Gay has tried to argue, or many enlightenments, as Gertrude Himmelfarb has argued, among others, the British, the American, the French. Certainly in the case of religion and secularism, a very important area for our debate, there are at least two enlightenments. The enlightenment of John Locke, which argues, simply put, for freedom for religion and is most clearly realized in the United States and the Enlightenment of Voltaire, which argues, simply put, for freedom from religion and is most clearly realized in France. And it's very important which one we choose. 
There's a real question to what extent one can talk at all about the Enlightenment project in the singular. To the extent that one can, Dorinda Utram has argued that the Enlightenment project is essentially a debate about the classic question, what is Enlightenment? Was ist Aufklärung? The title of the famous series in the Berlinischer Monatsschrift. Not Isaiah, but the city. Isaiah Berlin himself is very interesting on this subject because, as you know, a lot of his work was about questioning that tendency in the Enlightenment, which he called Enlightenment monism, and which he believed had at least opened the door to a path at the end of which was 20th century totalitarianism. He laid this out particularly in an essay called The Pursuit of the Ideal. He went so far in one in that essay as to say that rationalists, philosophes, were looking for the possibility of a final solution. And he knew what he was saying when he used that phrase. So there is a real problem with this easy invocation of the Enlightenment. And there's another problem with this easy invocation of the Enlightenment, which is that in a sense it makes the multiculturalist mistake because it culturalizes a set of values. It attaches them to a particular culture, a particular place, and a particular time. It says, at least implicitly, these are our values. And you newcomers, you Muslims, Sikhs, Hindus, Vietnamese, you foreigners, should adapt to these our values. It is, so to speak, the left-wing version of talking about Western values. And that, I think, is problematic. First of all, pragmatically, if you do want people to adopt these values, and I certainly do, it's rather wiser not to tell them that there are values, not theirs. It's arguably simply wrong if we agree with Amartya Sen that these values are in some real sense empirically universal, found in all cultures. And not least... It is contrary to the claim of the Enlightenment philosophers themselves because their central claim was precisely that these values were not local and ethnocentric and specifically Western, but were universal. I think we would do much better to put aside this comforting slogan of Enlightenment values and simply to spell out specifically and clearly what values it is that we are talking about in the knowledge that they are liberal and in the hope that they are or at least could be universal. Let me now turn to the second part of what I want to talk about which is the contested concept of multiculturalism. George Crowder has argued in his study of Berlin that one possible way to take forward Berlin thinking, to, as it were, extrapolate and extend his thinking, is towards a kind of liberal multiculturalism of the kind that, for example, Will Kim Licker has 
articulated. I think that's true. I think that is a possible extension of what Berlin was saying, but only one. And I would like to make a much more radical selection, suggestion. I would like to ask the following question. What would we lose? What would we lose if we abandoned the concept of multiculturalism altogether? I don't think we would lose much. I think we would gain some. Let me explain why. And I don't say this because the concept is contested, because, of course, all important political concepts are contested. Freedom, equality, pluralism, socialism, liberalism, they're all highly contested, but we would lose something if we'd abandoned them. We'd have to reinvent the term. I don't think that's true of multiculturalism. Why? Well, first of all, because it does fatefully confuse description and prescription, fact and norm, anthropology and ideology, a description of how things are and a politics, often called the politics of difference, of identity or of recognition. Of course, that's true to some extent of many concepts, but it's particularly true of this one. Starting with the problem of description, multiculturalism, multi-what? When you get into the literature and the speeches, the way the term is used, you very often find that multiculturalism is used almost interchangeably with several other terms, multi-ethnic, multi-faith, multilingual, multiracial, multinational, even. And each of those terms is itself problematic or brings its own set of multiple meanings. Take the term ethnic, for example, very widely used. The Harvard Encyclopedia of American Ethnic Groups has 14 different definitions of ethnic, several of them with multiple sub-definitions. Its own listings from A to Z of American ethnic groups start with Acadians and Afghans, proceed through Dominicans, Gentiles, Hutterites, and triracial isolates, whatever they are when they're at home, to Yankees and Zoroastrians. All ethnic groups, we're told. Multi-faith. In recent years in British debates, indeed European debates, multiculturalism is often used as a code for Muslims. But Islam is a religion, and actually a religion which in its history has been one of the most transcultural religions in the history of religions. Hassam Huntington uses religion essentially as the key defining feature of what he calls civilization. His book in German is called Kampf der Kulturen. Language, of course, the classic Hedarian denominator, Race, I don't know what race is outside the United States where I know what it means. I rather tend to agree with an American author who said race does not exist, but racism does. And then there's multinational. Actually, if you look at the literature on multiculturalism, an awful lot of it is really about national groups. 
This literature, I have to say, is quite heavily Canadian. Canada had the first Multiculturalism Act of any country. Authors like Charles Taylor and Wilkin Licker are thinking clearly in the first place about Canada. And the point about Canada is that its problem in the first place is about a national group, the Quebecois. Kim Licker distinguishes between national minorities and ethnic groups, between multination states and polyethnic states. Of course, Britain is both. In short, as a descriptive term, multiculturalism is profoundly unsatisfactory and elusive. We really don't know what we're talking about. Just as a footnote, could I mention that Brian Barry has gone through Iris Young's book on justice and the politics of difference, which lists a great many oppressed groups in the United States, blacks, Hispanics, women, the old, and so on, and concludes, I think, convincingly that her list of oppressed groups comprise 90% of the American population. Now, the key move in the argument for multiculturalism as a set of policies, or the two key moves, are the following. Firstly, to say, as does Joseph Rouse, that we have societies in which there are several stable cultural communities, both wishing and able to perpetuate themselves, or as Bhikkhu Parekh puts it, Most modern societies also include several self-conscious and more or less well-organized communities entertaining and living by their own different systems of beliefs and practices. He mentions specifically the Jews, the Gypsies, and the Amish, what he calls cultural communities. And secondly, the claim that individual human flourishing depends on a sense of full and unimpeded membership, of belonging to such a stable, respected recognized cultural community. And I want to question both these claims quite fundamentally. It seems to me that the claim that cultures should really be understood as stable, unchanging, solid cultural communities is a rather sort of simplistic kind of cultural and social anthropology, what Sailor Ben Habib calls a poor man's sociology. The Archbishop of Canterbury in a recent lecture, not the Sharia one, himself criticized the notion that cultures are fixed and given. And indeed the notion that rather as we have one man, one vote, it's one person, one culture, tick only one box. This seems to me simply wrong. What, for example, was Isaiah Berlin's culture? English and British, of course. Russian, of course. Jewish, of course. European, of course. He was a walking one-man multiculture. Ladies and gentlemen, I would like you, if you would, to answer the following question, silently perhaps, spontaneously. What is your culture? Perhaps you could tell me afterwards. But I bet that most people in this audience could not answer that question with a single word, a single adjective. You'd lead at least two, certainly I would. And that's not just because Wolfson College is a hotbed of cosmopolitanism, though of course it is that. That is the world we're in. 
one of the things that the term multiculturalism is trying to describe is in fact this tremendous mixing and remixing within individuals. 21st century London and Toronto is precisely not like 18th century Krakow or 18th century Sarajevo where you did have these solid, only slowly changing, uh, fixed and given, quote-unquote, cultural community, the Jewish community in Krakow next to the Polish Catholic community, which lived maybe in peaceful coexistence or not, but didn't mingle and intermix in individuals. Or in Sarajevo, I see Noel Malcolm here in the audience, he knows better than any of us, the orthodox Christian, the Catholic quarter, the Muslim quarter under the, uh, uh, the, the Ottoman millet system. And when we do have something like that in our great cities, in Birmingham or Bradford, when we do have what are loosely called ghettos, that is precisely the problem, not the solution. Cultural purity, says Kwame Anthony Appiah, is an oxymoron. Cultural purity is an oxymoron. It is an illusion that we have a single in unchanging culture, just as it is an illusion that we have a single unchanging identity. They are different, identities are different in different contexts. British Asian here, British Muslim there, simply British in another context, a Manchester United supporter in yet another context, a Boltonian looking with profound contempt on the city of Leeds in yet another. And cultures change over time. John Stallworthy will know, as will many of you, T.S. Eliot's famous notes towards the definition of culture, written, published 60 years ago, with its famous list of the characteristic activities and interests of the English. Derby Day, Henley Regatta, Beetroot in Vinegar, <laughs> 19th century Gothic churches and the music of Elgar. Well, it's wonderful, but 60 years on, do we recognize these as the char characteristic activities and interests of the English people? The list has changed. For example, beetroot in vinegar should now be replaced by chicken tikka masala. <laughs> Change, flux, mixing is the very essence of culture. As Salman Rushdie has written, it rejoices in mongrelization and fears the absolutism of the pure. Melange, hotpot, a bit of this and a bit of that is how newness enters the world. It is the great possibility that mass migration gives the world and I, Salman Rushdie, have tried to embrace it. He likes it. I like it. But even if you don't like it, it simply is. This is the world we're in and it is an anachronistic, a passé notion to return to some notion of some sort of solid, unchanging cultural communities. Even if that were desirable, which I think it is not. For as Amartya Sen has written, this is not so much multiculturalism as a notion of plural monoculturalism. Plural monoculturalism. Sen writes, if a young girl in a conservative immigrant family wants to go out on a date with an English boy, that would certainly be a multicultural initiative. In contrast, the attempt by her guardians to stop her doing this, a common enough occurrence, is hardly a multicultural move, since it keeps the culture sequestered. 
A further assumption, which seems to be both false and dangerous, is that there is moral agreement within cultures and moral conflict between them. Again, that seems to me empirically untrue. The threat we face of takfiri jihadist terrorism and extremist Islamism is sometimes described in Huntonian terms as a clash of civilizations. In fact, it is as much a clash within one civilization, within Islam, as between. 